So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into the sermon. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this testimony of your grace in the life of Saul. May we be freshly reminded of um, the work that you've done in our own hearts. We were once dead. You made us alive. We were in darkness. You brought us into light. It's not something that we are to take lightly or to easily forget, but we are to constantly be reminded of your goodness and grace and mercy and love towards us. May we see that here in this text through your work in Saul's life and how you've called him to be a preacher to the Gentiles and how he was greatly used by you to expand your kingdom and to make your son known. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him through down let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. I've titled this message, A Chosen Instrument. A Chosen Instrument. The gospel is continuing to spread and increase according to the plan and work of God and through the proclamation of his word through the apostles and the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Christ told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This was and is the promise and plan of God for his church. This is why the church exists. It is to make Christ known to the ends of the earth. And throughout Acts so far, we have seen powerful and particular manifestations of the Holy Spirit demonstrating the authority and saving power of the name of Jesus Christ to unite all kinds of people from all over the world into one body, the church. From Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church, the gospel has now spread and advanced into Judea and Samaria, north and south of Jerusalem. The church is rapidly growing, and this growth and increase was in the midst of and the result of external threats from those who opposed the message in the name of Christ and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, from internal threats, if you remember Ananias and Sapphira trying to um, not tell the truth about how much money they kept back and saying they gave to the church, disunity and disruption threats by trying to pull the apostles away from their primary duty of prayer and the ministry of the word, we saw it with the martyrdom of Stephen and the great persecution that fell upon the church in Jerusalem. But throughout all this, we see God working. God working to strengthen, to purify, to protect, to preserve, to unite, and to continue to build his church as the gospel continues to spread and advance. And it was the martyrdom of Stephen and this great persecution against the church in Jerusalem that not only initiated and advanced this work of God in Samaria, but it really became the catalyst that launched global missions. It became the catalyst that launched global missions that tells us that God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for the nations, and he will fulfill his promise to build his church, to have a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and family, for the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remotest part of the earth, as Christ said. That's good to know that God will accomplish that and fulfill that because it's a, his plan and it's his promise. But it's also good to know how he does this. How is that accomplished? And it's through his people. It's through the church. It's through those whom he has chosen and called to be his ambassadors, to be the proclaimers of truth. And we know that he does this through our proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we know that he saves through the accomplished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And he does this one soul at a time. We are to be involved in evangelism. We are to be involved and to participate in making Christ known through our proclamation, through our words, through our knowledge of the Son of God. And this is according to God's sovereign plan. We didn't come up with this. This is what is laid out in the scriptures for us to obey. It's a command. 
It's a commission from Christ himself to his people. He is providentially working in the lives of people and preparing and orchestrating and intervening and directing through the actions and decisions and circumstances of people so that he surrounds his people and moves his people to be in places where they need to be according to his perfect timing in order for those people around them to hear the gospel. And we saw this with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is also true for all believers. This is also true for all believers. God didn't just start being active in your life at conversion. He was active long before that. No, he was, we were on his mind from eternity past before all creation and every detail and event in time as you were born into this world was God's unfolding providence to bring you to himself and now to use you for his glory and the spread of his gospel. God has been at work long before you even know it. Acts chapter 8 ended with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and his inclusion into the church, showing that Jew, Samaritan, Gentile are all one in Christ. It doesn't matter. And Philip, also we were learned, was moved to Azotus, and he makes his way from there to Caesarea. And what was he doing? He kept proclaiming and preaching the gospel to all the cities. And now Luke is shifting his attention back onto Saul. Saul is first introduced in connection with the stoning of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. He may have been the man that orchestrated and instigated the whole thing as the people laid, if you remember, their robes at his feet before stoning Stephen, thus signifying that Saul had some influence. He had some authority, kind of like a mob leader getting his workers to do his dirty work for them while he stood by, observed, and watched. It says that he approved, he consented to it, and he was in hearty agreement which putting Stephen to death by stoning him. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, after the death of Stephen, it says of Saul that he began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. He became the church's worst enemy. He's described as ravaging the church, meaning that he was seeking to destroy the church. He was seeking to ruin the church. And the Greek word used is of wild beasts, animals, Lions and bears tearing at raw flesh. He's also said to have entered house after house of Christians, going in, interrupting them, pulling them off, dragging them off by force to prison. He's breaking apart families, tearing them apart, trying to silence and stop the spread of the gospel. And this is consistent with Saul's own testimony. In Acts chapter 22, verses 4 and 5, Paul gives a defense before the hostile Jewish crowd, and he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. He says in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, this is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. He says, so then... I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being fiercely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to, the, even to foreign cities. He says in 1 Corinthians fifteen nine. For I am the least of the apostles, 
not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor against the church of the living God. Saul was the church's worst enemy. And in these verses, Luke recounts the conversion of Saul so that we would see God's sovereignty in saving each soul and using each soul for the spread of his gospel. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. I'll probably be using both, but that's what it is. What we will see is that God is continuing to fulfill his promise to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and how Paul plays a significant and crucial role in that. Luke mentions the conversion of Saul three times in Acts. He mentions the conversion of Saul three times in Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. I won't read those accounts, but if you have time, go back and and read Acts 22 and Acts chapter 26. In Acts chapter 22, Paul's defense, again, before the hostile Jewish crowd in the temple, and Acts 26 is his defense before King Agrippa. These are in the same context where Paul explains how he used to persecute the church, how he became, how he was a persecutor to being now persecuted for Christ and a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul is a chosen instrument in the hand and plan of God. He is set apart as a unique apostle, not being one of the twelve who are eyewitnesses of Christ's earthly ministry and his death and resurrection and those commissioned by Christ to perform signs and wonders in order to authenticate and validate their message and ministry as being from the Lord. But Saul does have this encounter. He has this encounter with the post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, setting him apart as a unique man of God, a unique apostle. We look down at verse 17. It says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight. He saw the Lord. The Lord appeared to him, verse 27 as well. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And those two other accounts of Saul's conversion, Acts 22, Paul recounts what Ananias said to him. It says there, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see, to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. In Acts 26, the other account of his conversion, the Lord says to him, Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. The Lord appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus in a special, unique way, setting him apart as a chosen instrument and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Paul states that he is an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15.8, he says that the resurrected Christ appeared to him as one untimely born. In Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ himself. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he says that he was set apart even from his mother's womb and called for this ministry. And so Luke here gives us snapshots of Saul's life from before conversion, at conversion, and post-conversion or after conversion to show God's sovereignty in saving each soul and using each soul for the spread of his gospel. Saul's life before Christ, at conversion, and Saul's life after Christ. And that's the outline for this afternoon. Verses 1 and 2, before Christ. Again, it reads, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was Saul's life before Christ. This was Saul's life before Christ. And remember back in chapter 8, verse 3, he's ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, putting them into prison. Here it says that Saul is still persecuting the church. He's still doing that. He is still breathing threats, as it says in verse 1, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And breathing in here carries the idea, or breathing here carries the idea of breathing in. If you just breathe in right now, what are you doing? Take a deep breath. What are you doing when you breathe? You're getting oxygen so that you can continue to live. You're getting oxygen so that you can continue to live. That's what you're doing when you breathe in. In other words, this was Saul's oxygen. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This was his oxygen. This was his life. This was what he lived for. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord as a lifestyle. This was his identity. This is what gave him purpose. Why? In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, the other account of his conversion, he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, being zealous for God. He was a a zealous defender of Judaism and also a Pharisee. And so this led him to persecute Christians because he thought they were blaspheming God with their message about the risen and exalted Lord and Messiah, Jesus Christ. This man whom they thought was cursed of God because he hung on a tree. Saul thought he was a faithful follower of God by persecuting Christians. And this is what Jesus prophesied and warned his disciples would happen before his death and resurrection. In John chapter 16, verse 2, he says, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And so Saul went to great lengths, and he was enthusiastic about persecuting the church of God and the disciples of the Lord. Verse 2 says he went to the high priest. And verse 2, he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And the distance from Jerusalem to Damascus is around 135 miles. 135 miles. And why why Damascus? Because you know the, the gospel is continuing to spread through the disciples. And the gospel is starting to spread even to Damascus. And his goal is to stop the spread of the gospel. His goal is to stop the spread of the gospel before he goes too far. 
He wants to centralize it. He wants to neutralize it to Jerusalem so that he can destroy it. And he received approval and authority from the high priest to be able to do that. And it's not just that he hates Christians. It's not just that he hates Christians. He's trying to stop the spread of Christianity. There's a difference. He's trying to stop the spread of Christianity. You can hate and dislike something, but to take it a step further, you completely want to put a stop to it. And that's what Saul was attempting to do, put a stop to the spread of Christianity. And that's what Luke means here when he says the way. This is referring to the way of salvation, the way of the Lord. This is the Christian movement. This is referring to Christianity. It describes those who follow Jesus, this Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, and through whom no one will come to the Father but through him. This was Saul's life before Christ, a violent aggressor, a violent persecutor of the church because he thought Christians were blaspheming the name of God. And for all of us before Christ, we may not have been actively persecuting the church, church, going into the houses of Christians, dragging them off to prisons, bound to go on trial so that they could be put into prison, murdering. But we were still all sinners, enemies of God, at war with God in our minds and in our hearts. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, being deceived, being blinded, being lied to, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 1 through 3. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before God and accountable to God. This is the reality of life. And if you're here today and Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you will be judged for your sins and punished for your sins because God is holy and God is just. And he says that the wages of sin is death, not just physical death or spiritual death, but eternal death. The wrath of God poured out upon you for an eternity, everlasting, conscious torment, gnashing of teeth in fire, unending. This is not just a temporary punishment. This is an eternal punishment. But there is hope. There's good news and grace because of Jesus Christ. And it does not depend upon anything you do, or anything that you have done, or anything that you will do. And Luke provides a testimony of that with the life of Saul. So we've seen his life before Christ, this persecutor of the church, and now we'll look at conversion, the conversion of Saul, verses 3 through 19. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said to him, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Just from reading Luke's account or hearing the reading of Luke's account of Saul's conversion, we notice the Lord making himself known. The Lord making himself known and the emphasis on the Lord intervening. And through his providence, his plan being unfolded and revealed to Saul and to us. Verse 3, as Saul is making his way to Damascus with approval and authority from the high priest to persecute and capture Christians, the Lord reveals himself to Saul. says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This is the light of the glory of the risen and exalted Christ who is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we have to remember that he had persecuted Christians for what he believed to be a, a blasphemous lie that Jesus is the risen and exalted Lord reigning in glory. And now Saul himself is speaking to the risen and exalted Lord. What a moment of realization for Saul when it all just hits you in the face. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus is Lord. And notice that the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting my church? Saul was breathing threats and murder, it says, against the disciples of the Lord. But because Christ and his church are inseparably connected and joined together, in union together, he was persecuting the Lord. How you treat his church, how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ is how you treat the Lord. And if you are an unbeliever, how you treat the people of God has direct connection with God himself. And furthermore, there's no such thing as a Christian who is disconnected from the body, a Christian who is disconnected from the church. You cannot truly love Christ and not love his church. You cannot truly love his church and not love Christ. Much more could be said about this, but this is not the main point of the text. If you're a Christian, you belong to the church. The one another's are in the context of the church. Who are you accountable to? Who's shepherding your soul? Who's watching over you? Who's protecting you? What family is encouraging you, walking alongside you? helping you through trials and difficult times. Again, much more could be said. Verse 7 tells us that Saul was not alone on his trip to Damascus, but there were other men who traveled with him. It's clear that the Lord only truly revealed, revealed himself to Saul and that his words were only truly heard and understood by Saul because they were only for Saul. In Acts 22 verse 9, It says, and those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. 
They saw the light, but they didn't see the Lord. In verse 8, we see that Saul's divine encounter with the Lord resulted in physical blindness. Physical blindness. And this is to show what Saul was on the inside, on the outside. What he was on the inside is being shown through his physical blindness on the outside. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And he also at the same time confronts the Pharisees. The blind man can see, and the people who can see cannot see. And he says in John 9 verse 39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. This is to demonstrate a reversal. And this is also to display the power of Jesus Christ over sin and to display the power of Jesus Christ to save. And so Saul arrives in Damascus, being led by the hand. Remember, initially coming to Damascus to persecute all the Christians there, but now unable to do anything and completely blind, needing to be led by the hand. And verse 9 says he was there three days without sight. And he neither ate nor drank. So what was he doing? We know one thing he was doing from down in verse 11. says he was praying during that time. He was praying. And we learn from verse 10 that Damascus wasn't just where Saul wanted to put a stop to the Christian movement. But Damascus was also where the Lord has a disciple named Ananias that he would providentially use in the life of Saul. Verses 10 through 12. Now, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus, named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Well, Ananias has a vision from the Lord about going to Saul. Saul has a vision from the Lord about Ananias coming to him so that he might regain his sight. And in verses 13 to 14, Ananias is wisely and understandably cautious and aware of Saul's previous life before Christ and his current history. And so, yet, verses 15 through 17, Ananias is obedient. He understood that Saul was this man that persecuted the church. If he went to Saul, he could be bound and taken to Jerusalem and taken into prison. But he was told in a vision to go to Saul, to lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And he obediently goes. The Lord reveals to him his plan for Saul. He says in verse 15, if you look there, that he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Saul, it says, is the Lord's chosen instrument. He is the Lord's chosen instrument. He was set apart for salvation and set apart for special service unto the Lord. Galatians 1 verse 16 says, He was called to preach Christ among the Gentiles, to show that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ, that Christ has broken down that wall of hostility, that barrier. And this comes with a blessed cost. Following Jesus and living for him and proclaiming the gospel will lead to opposition and suffering and persecution. But we know from Romans eight eighteen, Apostle Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He understood the cost, but he understood that it was a blessed cost, that there's a purpose. 
And furthermore, in verse 15, the expression of bearing one's witness before, you see there, verse 15, before is the language of giving one's testimony in a legal setting. And this is what Jesus said was going to happen in Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 21. And that is what did happen. Paul was on trial before before Gentile rulers like Felix and Festus in Acts chapter 24 and 25. He is on trial before kings like Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He is on trial before local Jewish synagogues in the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23. And thus we see that being a chosen instrument of Christ and testifying of the name of Christ is closely linked with suffering for the name of Christ. Suffering for the name of Christ. And Paul, as we know, greatly suffered for Christ. Second Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29, and Second Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, speaks about some of the suffering that Paul went through. Imprisonments, multiple imprisonments, often in danger, five times receiving 39 lashes minus one, Three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, dangers from traveling, dangers from the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from these false teachers, labor and hardship, sleepless nights, constantly in hunger and thirst. And the question we have to ask is, why would he rather suffer than compromise? Why did Paul never give up? Why did he continue to persevere? Because of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to him. And because of the vision that he received. Because of the mission that he received. He's a born again new creation in Christ. He understood his calling. He understood his purpose in life. He understood his life before knowing Christ. And now his new life in Christ. And he understood that it was all because of Christ. He understood that he was a chosen instrument and that his life was not his own. He is now to do his master's will, the will of his Lord. In verses 17 and 18, Saul regains his sight because of the obedience of Ananias. Something like scale is fell from his eyes, it says. And all that means is that something was blinding him from seeing, and now that's gone. Now he's able to see again. That's because he's born again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. His eyes have been opened to see and to behold the glory of Christ. His physical blindness, again, being the outward picture of his inner heart condition of his spiritual blindness, has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this power and authority of Christ is mediated through the church as we proclaim the good news and people hear and repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is saying that, like Ananias, we have a role to play. We are to participate and be involved in proclaiming the gospel as the church of the living God. And we see that at the end of verse 18, that he was baptized. He is proclaiming. He was identifying himself with the visible church. In verse 19, he took food and was strengthened because he didn't eat or drink for three days, and he's hungry. What a complete transformation of life. His life used to be persecuting the church and Christ, and now his life is building up the church and proclaiming Christ and preaching Christ. He originally went to Damascus to stop the spread of the gospel, and God 
sovereignly and providentially intervened in his life. He didn't choose God. And that's very clear. He did not choose God. God chose him. God chose Saul to be his chosen instrument. As Saul was on his way down the broad path of destruction, headed towards an eternity of judgment. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. This is why the gospel is good news. If left to go his own way, he would continue to wreak havoc upon the church and persecute the disciples of the Lord to his own eternal condemnation. But God, but God because of his mercy, but God because of his grace, but God because of his predetermined plan. This is the mercy and grace and love of God displayed and it completely transforms your life. And so we looked at Saul's life before Christ. We've looked at the sovereignty and providence of God in Saul's life at conversion. And now we'll look at Saul's life after Christ. What does your life look like now that you're a a follower of Christ? That's verses 19b to verse 31. In verses 19 and 20, we notice that after coming to Christ, if you look there, he surrounded himself with other disciples. Verse 19, we notice that after coming to Christ, Saul surrounded himself with other disciples and he immediately began to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogues. And all who heard him were amazed because they were aware of who Saul was. It was clear that something was different about his life. There's a complete change, a complete direction of life. It says in verse 22 that Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And the word used of increasing in strength refers to the empowerment of the Spirit. The Spirit was actively working in his life, transforming him, giving him power and ability to preach the word and to live boldly for Christ. And this is what Stephen, who is described as a man full of the Spirit and wisdom, was doing in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, where those from the synagogue of the freedmen, perhaps even including Saul himself, as the synagogue of the freedmen included those from Cilicia, says there they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And that would ultimately lead to Stephen's martyrdom. They would oppose him, put false witnesses to take him to trial so that they can stone him. And this would also lead to the attempt to put an end to Saul's life as well. Preaching Christ and the truth of the word will bring persecution and suffering. But through the providence of God, the plot of the Jews, it says, became known to Saul and the disciples, helped him escape out of the city through an opening in the wall in a large basket. And so he headed back to Jerusalem and was trying to associate with the disciples there in Jerusalem. He always wanted to be around other believers. But because they knew his past, they were afraid, not believing that he was a true disciple. And then verse 27, notice Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement mentioned in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. He brought Saul to the apostles and affirmed the reality of Saul's conversion while he was on the road to Damascus and his bold ministry of preaching Christ and making Christ known. He testified to the reality of, of Saul's conversion. And in verse 29, we, we find Saul continuing to preach Christ. 
this time to the Hellenistic Jews. And why was Paul witnessing to the Hellenistic Jews? The same group, if you remember, that opposed and put Stephen to death. He does this to show that he's picking up where Stephen left off. He's picking up where Stephen left off and to show the transformation of his own life after knowing Christ as a result of the power of the word and the power of the spirit. Saul is now is now for the cause that he helped to originally attempt to stop, which was Stephen's cause. And now he continues that and he will advance the gospel even further to the Gentiles. These Hellenistic Jews also, it says, wanted to kill Saul. And providentially, again, the disciples learn of it and they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him to Tarsus, back to his hometown. And Caesarea was where Philip left off, if you remember. And now Paul will take and advance the gospel even further. He continues what Stephen began. He continues what Philip began because he is God's chosen instrument to take the gospel and advance the gospel to the Gentiles. And as we observed earlier, it's not just that Saul hated Christians. He wanted to put a stop to the spread of Christianity. And now we see that it's not just that Saul or Paul loves Christians. He's trying to advance the spread of Christianity. And verse 31 gives this summary statement of what was happening. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, It says it continued to increase. And this increase is referring both to growth in numbers and growth in godliness, in numbers and in godliness, in spiritual maturity as a result of the Holy Spirit. This brought peace, sanctification, comfort, and encouragement. And the gospel continued to spread and advance. God is faithful to his promises, and Christ will build his church, and he does this by sovereignly saving each soul and using each soul for the spread of his gospel and for the edification of his church. Acts chapter 7, verse 60, going back to the stoning of Stephen, Stephen says, as he's being stoned moments before his death, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And who was there? Saul as those who opposed Stephen's message, laid their robes at his feet so that they can better stone Stephen and not get blood on them. Saul was there. Saul heard this loud cry of, Lord, do not hold this in against them. Do you think he remembered that moment as the Lord appeared to him, revealed himself to him, to see Stephen, this man full of the spirit and of wisdom, full of faith and full of grace. It impacted him. It impacted his ministry. You can see it in his writings. We also see here in this testimony of God's grace in Saul's life that there is no neutrality with God. There is no neutrality with God. You're either for God or you're against God. You're either his friend or you're his enemy. And also, no one is beyond the love of Christ. No one is beyond the love of Christ. And so if you're here, you don't know the Lord, and your heart is heavy with the guilt of sin, your conscience is bothered within you after hearing about the righteous wrath of God that your sins deserve, and you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, there is good news. There is hope. 
what that reveals is that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And the gospel reveals who that Savior is and what he has done and accomplished so that you can be saved. And you will be saved if you repent and turn away from your wicked ways and turn to the perfect substitute and Savior, Jesus Christ. God saves all kinds of people, even a zealous Pharisee and persecutor of the church. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, Samaritan, or Gentile, or an Ethiopian eunuch. It doesn't matter how smart you are, your education level. It doesn't matter how much money you make and have, how successful you think you are. It doesn't matter about your skin color. It doesn't matter about your physical condition, your status in society, your accomplishments or your accolades, your former or your present life in sin. If you repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And all who do are included and are a part of the kingdom of God. This is the power of the gospel to save. This is the power of the gospel to save and to unite all people together in Christ. And this is the beauty and the significance of the church. The church is the beacon of hope in this world. And we are to display that and proclaim that in how we live. We're also reminded here of the, the sovereignty of God in salvation. But not just the sovereignty of God in salvation, but in suffering for Christ. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. God is sovereign over salvation, and because of our salvation, he's granted to us suffering, which we must go through for Christ, as a result of our proclamation and the display of our devotion to Christ in how we live. Paul was saved by Christ, and therefore he suffered for Christ. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when persecution and opposition comes our way. We are to expect it as those who live godly in Christ Jesus. And as with Jesus and the apostles and Stephen and Philip and now Paul, we see that their confidence and their trust, how they were able to be bold and courageous was because of their confidence and trust in the power of the word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look down at chapter 8, verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish Wrong chapter, chapter 9, verse 20. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Verse 22, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Verse 27, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he did this because he believed and trusted in the power of the word to transform through the spirit of the God, through the spirit of God. We also see that God uses other people in our lives. God uses other people in our lives. He used Ananias in the life of Saul. He used Barnabas in the life of Saul. He used other disciples in the life of Saul to help him escape from hearing the plot of the Jews to kill him. Verse 26, if you look there, says he was trying to associate. means to bind closely with, to cling to. It's a term of intimacy. He was trying to associate with the disciples. This is after Christ. These are the people he formerly despised. 
who he was seeking to destroy, silence, and kill. And now his heart is transformed and he wants to associate with them, cling closely to, in an intimate relationship with. Verse 28 says, He was with them, moving about freely, with the disciples, with other believers. And this means going in and out, implying that this was his regular way of life. He was always surrounded by the people of God. This was his lifestyle. Previously breathing in murder and threats against the disciples, now wanting to always be around them, to embrace them. It's a complete transformation. Verse 25. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. In verse 30, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away from Tarsus. God used other believers, other disciples, to providentially protect him and to send him on his way to other places that he might continue to minister. Something else we learn here is that Ananias received a vision. Saul received a vision. And so in regard to visions, the Lord doesn't speak to us today audibly or through visions, which in Scripture is connected with divine revelation. It's connected with divine revelation. God instructing, God making himself known, God revealing or working out his plan through his people, God progressively completing his written word to us. And now that word is complete. It's complete. So we need no further new revelation. We don't need dreams or visions from the Lord to tell us something that's not already in the sufficient word of God which we are not to add to or subtract from. It's complete. And it's what God wants us to know, not to seek any other way of knowing him. And also important to note, in relation to visions or other kinds of visions, is that in Scripture, no one comes up with their own visions. No one comes up with their own visions. They're from the Lord directly to reveal himself so that they would speak the truth. No one comes up with their own visions, and neither, for the New Covenant Church, is the church ever commanded to seek a vision, or to have a vision, or to pursue a vision. Everything we need, again, is already given and revealed to us in the sufficient word of God. All we need to do is trust. All we need to do is obey. The New Testament church is not to focus on seeking a man-made vision, but rather on a focus on a God-mandated commission. We do not need to distract ourselves from doing something that we are not called to do. We are to trust the scriptures and obey the scriptures. We are to continue to do what the church has always done, what the church has always done, and we see God working through the power of his word, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the ordinary means of grace as the people of God continue to gather together and love one another and to make Christ known. Nothing changed. This is what we are still to do today. We don't need anything extra. We don't need to add to it. What he has given to us is perfect and sufficient. And Christ is the head, and we obey his directions. 
And this is also, this also communicates the importance of having a proper and biblical ecclesiology or doctrine of the church and a proper and biblical understanding of the sovereignty and the providence of God. If you're looking for something that the church is not in control of or for something that would be accomplished in ways that the Lord has not prescribed or for something beyond what Scripture says in relation to the church and not focused on what the Scriptures actually do say and command and prescribe for the church to do and for the church to be, which, according to God, is enough and sufficient, then you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed, and in a sense, this will no longer be Christ's church. It's not our vision. It's not the vision of the elders or the leadership team. It's not our direction. It is Christ. This is his church. We are to follow him and his commands. And we are to be faithful to obey and trust him according to his word. We see that Saul's Damascus Road encounter with the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, it would shape Paul's theology. It would shape his life and his ministry and would lead to Paul's unwavering commitment to the gospel and to the spread and advancement of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, Paul writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Philippians 1, 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we know that it shaped Paul's theology because we have Romans. We have 1 Corinthians. We have 2 Corinthians. We have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, maybe even Hebrews, all written by the Apostle Paul. God saved Paul, used Paul, a chosen instrument of his. And if you are in Christ, God has saved you, and so may you be a useful instrument in the hand of God, seeking to do his will, trusting and obeying him, And so we praise God for his salvation, for salvation is only found in him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, I'll close with this verse. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so may we be faithful to make Christ known because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has the power to save. We thank you for your spirit and the ministry of your spirit in regenerating our hearts, in sanctifying us, in sustaining us, in continuing to do a work in our lives to help us through trials, to help us persevere through persecution and opposition and suffering that you may be glorified. Father, we praise you as your people who
fully understand that apart from you and your grace and mercy and love, we would still be lost in our sins and dead in our trespasses, headed for destruction and judgment. But because of your Son, we now have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and joy in you. May we make that joy known through the proclamation of your word, and may we live lives consistent with the power of the transforming, consistent with the transforming power of your spirit that is actively working in us in light of this world that we live in. We thank you for this time. May you be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.